Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the podcast, I welcome Dr. Elizabeth Boham. Dr. Boham is board certified in family medicine from Albany Medical School. She received her undergraduate degree in nutritional biochemistry from Cornell University and her graduate degree from Columbia University. In 2007, Dr. Boham joined Dr. Mark Hyman at the Ultra Wellness Center, a fantastic functional medicine care facility in Lenox, Massachusetts. She is a registered dietitian and the creator of the video program, Breast Wellness, Tools to Prevent and Heal from Breast Cancer. At the age of 30, Liz received a very surprising diagnosis, one that impacts one in every eight American women, breast cancer. This diagnosis propelled her to discover functional medicine and to look upstream for the root causes of her disease. In this episode, Liz and I discuss her journey through cancer. We talk about protocols that create a terrain in your body that is unfriendly to the proliferation of diseases like cancer. And we discuss how healthy insulin levels and a strong gut can be a bulwark against disease. Now, if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with doctors like Mark Hyman and Mary Pardee, Zach Bush, and Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library. That includes more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And on a more personal note, my better half, Skylar, and I are leading our first joint retreat ever at Commune Topanga, our laboratory in the Santa Monica Mountains. There'll be great yoga taught by Skylar, amazing food, and I will be interviewing a special guest doctor on the topic of metabolism and reading and discussing some of my musings. 
So you can find more about that at onecommune.com retreat. Now, without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Elizabeth Boham. Dr. Elizabeth Boham, uh, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you. Oh, great to be with you, Jeff. Yeah, so I'm really excited uh, for a whole variety of reasons to to talk with you, and I've been uh, immersing myself in your work over the last couple of weeks. Um, so I just uh, spent a couple of days with Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who is known often as the godfather of functional medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're on the cusp of releasing a longevity course with your colleague and dear friend, um, Dr. Mark Hyman, who's also obviously a prominent voice in functional medicine. So uh, mingling with all of your friends and colleagues. But one thing that I realized on this show uh, is that we've never really done a thorough um, overview of exactly what functional medicine is. Uh, and I can't imagine a better person to do it with, given your breadth of experience and the length of your educational credentials. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I think maybe as a way at it um, to explore um, the utility of functional medicine and nutrition, that we could start by grounding it in some of your personal experience. So, yeah. if you don't mind, going back just a few years, not many, uh, to the time we were 30, um, you received a relatively surprising diagnosis. And um, this is a diagnosis that one in every eight American women, I believe, receive. Mm -hmm. Um, This year, there's an estimated 290,000 Americans that will receive some form of this diagnosis. So, do you mind sharing with us a little bit of your your personal story as a way in the door? Yeah, not at all. So, yes, I just had actually my 23rd anniversary of when I was diagnosed and um which is kind of crazy to me. Okay. Um so I was 30 at the time and my husband and I were were newly married, ready to start a family actually, and um I had spent some time, I was in the middle of my residency. So I'm um, board certified in family medicine. And I was in the middle of that residency program. And, you know, I find this mass in my left breast, which didn't make any sense to me. And, uh, but, but, you know, my husband's like, you've got to get that checked out. And when I did get it checked out, they did a biopsy that was inconclusive. And my breast surgeon who I just worked with, you know, a few months earlier in a rotation, she's like, you know, you really need to, we, we should just take this out, especially we don't really know what it is, but you're going to be, you know, thinking about having some children and you know, it's best to just take it out. And um, so September 2nd in 1999, they removed this, what ended up being a triple negative breast cancer. And um, which, you know, for people who know about triple negative breast cancers, they're very fast growing, aggressive cancers, more likely to happen in younger women, um, more common in, uh, in African-American and African descendants, but not obviously not only. 
And um, I was really lucky. I had um, really fast access to healthcare and knew a lot of physicians who just got me in right away and had it removed and then went through uh, chemotherapy and then radiation. And, um, but, but it was, it was crazy because I was this 30 year old woman who thought she was doing everything right. My, you know, as, as you said, my undergraduate and graduate degree was in nutrition and exercise physiology. And I, practice what I preached. I was very interested in prevention and wellness and, and, um, and I don't really have a strong family history of breast cancer. It was not something I was going to get, you know, in medical school, we often diagnosed ourselves with all sorts of things like, oh, do you have depression or schizophrenia? Or, you know, you kind of come up with all sorts of things going on, you know, in your body. Breast cancer was not one of those things I ever thought I was going to get. Um, and so it was, it was crazy. It was like, why would I have breast cancer? I'm this healthy, uh, young woman, you know, without a family history. And, um, I ended up having this really aggressive breast cancer. And so it really taught me a lot about how to be a good physician. It taught me a lot about mm. how I think about health and wellness and disease and prevention and, and all of that. Um, and it taught me a lot about the healthcare system. Um, but it was, it was, it was around, you know, it was that time I realized, I mean, I realized a lot about myself going through all of this. Um, but one of the things I knew that I was, I was, I struggled in medical school and residency training with the, with the training I was getting. So I, I didn't have, I didn't come from a family that had a lot of doctors in their family. Everybody was PhD doctors, no MD or uh, ND yeah. or DO doctors, nobody working in healthcare. And so when I thought, oh, I'm going to go to medical school, this is going to be a great idea. Um, I really wasn't, I didn't really have an idea of what I was getting into. And, and we focused so much on disease and pharmacology and acute care medicine, which I can truly appreciate how important it is, but it was, it took me away from where my passion was. And, um, and, and so I was, I really was, frustrated a, a lot during my training. And, and I think that that level of stress that I was under, the mindset that I was dealing with, the way I was kind of looking at the whole thing, and it was pretty negative way. Um, and then on top of it, just working a lot of hours, I was in the ICU, you know, my, the way that my body was handling stress at that time was, was not very good. And it was a lot that I had to work on and, and have subsequently over the years really, really focused on and worked on. But, but I knew I needed to do when I kind of got through this whole treatment and, uh, um, you know, when I finished everything and I finished my residency program, I knew I wanted to do it differently, right? I knew I wanted to have a practice that was, that was not the way I was getting trained completely, right? I knew I needed to do, I really needed to focus on how do I integrate my nutrition background with my medical school training? How do I look at health and disease in a different way. And, and, and so I was, I was really lucky. Um, It's kind of an interesting story. My, when I finished my last round of chemotherapy, my mom took me to Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires for this mother daughter weekend. And um, it was, you know, it's a beautiful spa. If anybody knows of Canyon Ranch, it's a beautiful spa. And it was a, it was a celebration of me finishing chemotherapy. And my mom went to a bunch of lectures while we were there and met one of the physicians there, Cindy Geyer, 
who um, now works with us at the Ultra Wellness Center. But um, uh, it, it was that connection. And she, of course, being a great mother, you know, got, got me a rotation during my residency at Canyon Ranch. And that's when I met Mark Hyman and Kathy Swift and Todd Lapine and, and Cindy Geyer, as I mentioned. And, and then when, you know, a few years after I finished my residency, I was lucky enough to get a job there and go to my first AFMCP, which is the, the, fir- the initial training course within IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine. And it was there where I met Jeffrey Bland and David Jones. And it, it just, it blew me away. It was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is the way, this is the map. These are the tools where I can incorporate all of my nutrition education the way that I think about health and disease and, and, and disease management or, or health care into, you know, and, and do this as a practice within functional medicine. So it was this, you know, it was this, as everybody says, light bulb moment where I was like, this is my home. These are my people. This is my tribe. And that was in 2004. And, um, and then I've been lucky. I've been blessed to be able to practice functional medicine ever since. Beautiful. And you never had any recurrence. I have not. No, I'm not. Knock, I'm knocking yeah. on wood right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only good thing about having a really fast-growing aggressive cancer is um, that you know once you get past year five, you're you know you can you might get another cancer, which I guess I could. I try not to, hoping not to, yeah. but um, but that cancer probably will not come back because that one that 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 cancer would have come back already if it if it wasn't gotten rid of at that time probably as far as we know yeah. what the research shows <laughs> well you've spent 23 years creating an unfriendly terrain for new novel yeah. cancer cells so we can talk about that a little bit i mean uh, just to share a little bit uh, briefly of my personal story so i was at sloan kettering cancer center uh as a 13 year old um in the pediatrics ward now i i didn't uh, i count myself to be incredibly fortunate given the plight of many of the children in, in that particular ward. That's just, let's just say that the indoor is wider than the outdoor at Sloan Kettering. Um, but, um, but I can appreciate the um, acute care or standards of care that I was lucky to receive. So surgery being one of them. Um, I didn't have to go through chemo or radiation, luckily, because my tumor was very topical and they injected a bunch of liquid nitrogen and froze off all the um, malignant cells uh, and plenty of good, plenty of good cells, too. Um, but overall, um, you know, I was I, I was very lucky and have an appreciation for some forms of conventional medicine. That Absolutely. being said, um when we think about a cancer cell and what it actually is sort of a, as a mutated cell or that, that the DNA or the genes go through some form of mutation and disrupt the order of how that cell uh, would normally grow uh, or proliferate, et cetera, um, we can create a friendly or unfriendly environment for that cell to metastasize or proliferate. So I wonder if you could pull on that thread a little bit in terms of 
okay, we might have some sort of genetic predisposition for of can, for cancer. Mm-hmm. Their cancer might come into our lives in some fashion. In fact, we all have some degree of cancer cells in our body, but um, the immune system often deals with them. So how do we how do we um, foster a balanced immune system such to uh, as to create an unfriendly terrain? for cancer to proliferate. You know, I love talking about that because I think a lot of people don't realize how much they they can influence their risk of cancer. And, and it doesn't mean that we aren't, like you said, we might get a cancer, but how much we can influence some of the outcomes. And really, it it's, goes beyond just focusing on that individual cancer cell, but focusing on the terrain or the soil that is surrounding those cells in our body. And we know, for example, that um, insulin and insulin resistance, when there's high levels of insulin in the body, which is which unfortunately a huge percentage of people in the United States and worldwide are dealing with levels of insulin that, that are higher than they should be, right? We call that insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome or or pre-diabetes, right? When when the body is making more insulin to keep the blood sugar in the normal range, that high level of insulin has been tied to multiple different types of cancer. It is one of the things we know the most about with research in terms of that can create this unhealthy terrain where cancer likes to grow. And, you know, insulin resistance, high levels of insulin have been tied to breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, and others as well, right? We, and not only that, but insulin resistance and high levels of insulin are tied to heart disease and stroke and, and diabetes and, and Alzheimer's disease, right? So, there's, so we really can do a lot that can create this terrain where cancer is less likely to go, grow. Um, for example, we know that when we eat a diet that balances our blood sugar, right, when we're not spiking our blood sugar, then that what happens is we don't spike our insulin as much either. And, you know, by, by balancing and having, you know, protein at each meal with, with a good healthy fiber source and some healthy fats, you know, when you balance your blood sugar like that and you prevent these spikes in the blood sugar, as a result, you don't get those spikes in insulin either. And that creates a healthier terrain where cancer is less likely to grow, right? And, and there's so right. many, I, we could go through so many examples. Yeah, well, you, know, you, just, you, you, well, you just epitomized, I think, the essence of functional medicine, where you started yeah. with something that was highly correlated, or, or, like insulin. Mm-hmm. And I, I might even ask you about insulin's relationship with growth hormone, but, but hold, hold that thought just for a moment. And then you started to go upstream, right? Yes. And say, well, why are we running high insulin levels? Well, yeah. it's because we have too much sugar in our blood. Um, mm-hmm. And insulin, the pancreas has to go into overload uh, and work overtime to produce enough insulin to usher the glucose either into our cells or into our liver as glycogen or convert it into fats, or there's all these glycoprotein advanced glycation end product things to worry about there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you brought it back upstream. Well, why do we have uh, overly high concentrations of glucose in our bloodstream? Well, 
standard American diet, right? Refined grains, too much Mm -hmm. sugar, uh, Mm -hmm. processed meats, processed foods. So, you know, you suggested a few things that I've adopted over the, the last couple of years. So a low glycemic diet with healthy fats, healthy proteins, and lots of fiber. Um, and, and fiber kind of gets this uh, kind of short shrift a lot of it at the time as kind of your grandfather's Metamucil <laughs> or, or whatever. But it, it plays such an important role in the gut in terms of slowing down the absorption uh, of glucose into um, into the bloodstream. So that was just, I, I think just you just typified a, the brain of a, of a functional medicine doctor that's not just going to throw uh, a, a drug at a symptom, but actually do some, some deeper analysis. So maybe pull on that relationship between insulin um, and high levels of insulin and cancer just for a moment, because obviously we're always kind of trying to reach this, find this balance between growth in our body and rest and restoration within our body and repair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do high levels of insulin relate to stimulating growth in ways that we might not want? Right. So high levels of insulin are connected with, like you mentioned, the high levels of growth hormone, as well as high levels of cortisol, as well as high levels of inflammation and oxidative stress. And so all of these things can create a terrain where cancer is more likely to grow. And and I think the other thing that um, I wanted to sort of come back to was was when you've got somebody, let's say we do testing and we find they have high levels of insulin, or maybe they come in and we see that they have signs of high levels of insulin. What that might that be? They're gaining weight more quickly. They're gaining weight around their belly. Um, they may have more skin tags. Uh, they may have their if they're a woman, they're and they're um, premenopausal. Their periods may be irregular. They may have this this diagnosis of PCOS, or maybe they have you know hair loss um, or hair growth on their face where they don't want it as a woman. Um, so there's so many things that kind of give us this clue that somebody may have insulin resistance. But again, you then have to say why, right? And we mentioned that, okay, food is one big reason, right? We have a lot of people eating the standard American diet, very processed, or maybe their, their mother did or their mother's mother, right? And, and we know that there can be influence throughout cross generations, but we also know there's other reasons that people have insulin resistance. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating is this connection with our microbiome. And mm. when, when, when the bugs in our gut, sometimes they get out of balance and there we can show when they get out of balance that that can trigger this, this insulin resistance in some people with the right genetics. Or for example, um, we know toxins have been associated with insulin resistance. You know, BPA, that, right. this, that, that, that hard plastic has been associated with insulin resistance. So not only is it associated with breast cancer and it's a xenoestrogen, but it's associated with insulin resistance and, and weight gain. And, and um, Agent Orange, for example, has been associated with insulin resistance. So there's multiple toxins as well. So 
that's what I think is so fascinating and fun even to say with functional medicine is we really step back and we say, okay, I need to get this, this, this detailed history and look at my patient's timeline in an effort to figure out where do we need to focus with this person, you know, because, because we want to ask that question, why, what are the, what are the underlying imbalances in their body so that we can more easily help them get to their optimal health. And as we just mentioned, it's different for each person, right? And, and we're just giving one thing that creates this unhealthy terrain, insulin resistance. Well, you're certainly putting the fun in functional medicine. Um, I, I feel like it's often like a crossword puzzle um, in, in some ways, you know, because so you brought up, brought up the gut microbiome, for example. So if you're eating a, a diet with prebiotic fiber, for example, you are feeding your good bugs in your gut yeah. such that then they create postbiotics or these metabolites that are often referred to as short chain fatty acids. Now, the famous one that gets a coronation, if you will, is butyrate. And butyrate actually upregulates um, T cells, the T cells of the immune system, and particularly the T reg cells. Um, but if you keep playing with that crossword puzzle, you'll know that T cells, along with natural killer cells, are the cells within the immune system that are generally very, very good at, at neutering and eating uh, dysfunctional cancer cells. Yes. So there are a lot of ways that essentially, like you've said, that you can create the optimal terrain to protect yourself from a whole variety of diseases, but you know, obviously cancer being one of them. There's so many amazing phytonutrients, right? Like those, the, the components in our plant foods uh, that really go on to feed the good bacteria in our gut, right? You you, um, we know that anthocyanins, which can be found like in, in pomegranate, for example, can have been shown to feed the good bacteria. Um, uh, sulforaphane found from your, in your cruciferous vegetables also feeds your good bacteria. EGCG in your green tea influences the good bacteria. So one of the things that, you know, when I always work with somebody and of course, we come up with an individualized approach, but one of the things that we can all do is work to increase the amount of phytonutrients we have in our diet, in our daily diet, because that really impacts so many things, um, one of them being feed, you know, food for the good, healthy bugs in our gut. And so really, the recommendation is 8 to 12 servings of colorful plant foods, and that includes your vegetables, your fruits, your teas, your spices every day. And, you know, it's doable. People just have to sort of work on, okay, how can I incorporate, get, you know, incorporate a little more into breakfast and, you know, s squeeze some more vegetables into my omelet and have more different things in my salad and add more spices. It's definitely doable if you pay attention to that. It's doable. And again, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you brought up sulforaphane, so, um, which I believe is a form of glucosinolate, um, but that's a little bit above my pay grade. But I've started um, sprouting um, yeah. at home 
So I, uh, well, I have all these jars. It's a little bit over the top, to be honest. But, you know, I, I, I sprout uh, broccoli sprouts. Now, broccoli as a cruciferous vegetable is very, very high in sulforaphane, which is an anti-carcinogen, as, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but the broccoli sprouts actually, I think, have a concentration that's like 30x or something. Even, they're way higher. This, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And it takes five days to make a pound of this stuff right on my countertop for essentially free. I mean, it's like 25 cents a pound once I kind of try to do the math on it. And I, I there's no carbon footprint. There's no soil needed. There's no sun needed. There's no picking and packing. There's no, it, it's regenerative farm fresh <laughs> organic right there and that you can just make at home that uh, that ends up becoming a tremendous amount of fun, yeah. um, but it is also just a, a you know a ritual that that becomes um, that confers a lot of health benefit. So that is so um, cool. Big, Good for I'm, you. I'm a big sprouter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, extolling the virtues of sprouting all the time. <laughs> that is so cool. You're absolutely right. Right, broccoli sprouts have even more of this uh, glucosinolate, which is called glucoraphanin than even mm. broccoli, right? It's a much higher concentration. And then when, when you chop or chew, um, it, it gets released and it can uh, come together with meracinase, um, which then produces the two together, then produce sulforaphane. And, and where the gut also comes in is the bugs in our digestive system also have this meracinase, which can activate the glucoraphanin and the broccoli sprouts and make sulforaphane. All of which is to say that, you know, uh, that our microbiome has a huge impact on how we utilize different phytonutrients and, and have an, you know, it does have an impact on our overall health, of course. So that's so cool. I'm really excited for you and your broccoli sprouts. Yeah, I've even exported it to France. I mentioned before we started recording that my daughter just moved to Paris. Um, and, uh, and like I've also said, they never listen to you, but they never failed to imitate you. Mm -hmm. So she sent me a little video of her tiny little flat in the fifth arrondissement in Paris, where she held up her little wide mouth mason jar of sprouts. And I, there was nothing that could fill a, a, a parent's uh, heart with joy more than the fact that uh, their daughter at 18 is sprouting in a foreign country. Anyways, that is <laughs> so is fun. Aside. Yeah. Um, well, you brought up, um, polyphenols and um and the impact that polyphenols have on our gut bacteria um i i've also he heard you talk about polyphenols as having the ability to actually block certain kinds of environmental toxins um can yes. you talk about that a little bit yeah so you know there's there's it, there's an interesting um pathway that looks at how uh, certain phytonutrients can block the, um, the, the plastics, those xenoestrogens from having an mm. impact, a negative impact on our health, which is really just amazing to understand. Um, I wish I could show some of the diagrams, but, um, but, but what, what we know is that xenoestrogens, so these are these, um, chemicals from the environment that can actually impact the estrogen receptor in the body. 
So things like BPA, as we mentioned, but also phthalates and parabens and, um, you know, multiple different pesticides, there's multiple different toxins that actually can impact our estrogen receptor in the body. And that's when we've realized that these xenoestrogens can influence our risk of breast cancer and uterine cancer and prostate cancer and um, fertility and our cycles. And, you know, there's so, it, it has such an impact, unfortunately, because we have such exposure, unfortunately. But one of the things that's really cool about these polyphenols, right, these, these components in our plant food is that they can actually negate some of the negative impact, some of that, those, the damaging impact that these, these xenoestrogen toxins can have. One of the other things I think is so fascinating about polyphenols and phytonutrients is that they, you know, they can, they can, they are the plant actually, the plant has these components in it to protect itself from the damaging uh, environment around it. So it, it's, they're there to help the plant grow and survive. And so that we know that then what we see is that when the plant has to work harder to survive, it's actually, it actually contains more phytonutrients and polyphenols in it. All the more reason to be choosing organic, you know, because these plants are having to work harder to survive. You know, they're not getting sprayed on that, you know, gets rid of the bugs. They're having to, you know, make some of their own internal compounds that are keeping it, you know, uh, making it easier for it to survive. So, so, you know, not only do, do we want to choose organic whenever possible just to lower our toxic load, but also we're going to be getting better quality, better quality foods. Yeah. Isn't this incredible that the adaptive protective measures that evolve over millennia in plants can get transferred to upgrade human immunity? I mean, it is so yeah. amazing. And if there's ever any proof that you need uh, to underscore this notion that we're all connected, that planetary health and plant health and soil health and human health are all one thing. Well, there you have it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's funny because as just, as I mentioned, I spent a couple of days with, with Jeffrey Bland and he has this Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which he talks about quite a bit. And you think about the Himalayas, there's no uh, more difficult environment in the world to grow up in if you're a plant than the Himalayas, you know, you've got wind and you've got rocky soils and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, sun that's very, very intense and high altitudes. And so, like you said, over hundreds of years or millennia, really, you know, these plants develop protective mechanisms and those adaptive mechanisms turn out to be polyphenols like yeah. luteolin and, and resveratrol and quercetin yeah. and then we get to eat them and then that confers benefit uh to us and our, our and our microbes and our immune system it is so amazing really when you think yeah. about that inter that inter that mutual interdependence it's it's so cool absolutely so you know the, the that's when we always speak about eating from the rainbow right you know, getting getting something from every color of the rainbow every day, and those eight to twelve uh, fruits and vegetables and spices and teas and coffees, right? Um, eight to twelve phytonutrients every day. So, 
um, you know, have, having something that's red and something that's orange and yellow and green and blue and purple and white and tan and, and getting a variety of different plant foods as much as you can and mixing it up, um, I think is just a wonderful thing to really focus on when you're saying, okay, what can I do to build, you know, healthy terrain where cancer is less likely to grow? What can, what can I do? And that's a, that's a really great place to, to focus. Yeah, there's this concept that has been bubbling up, at least in, in, on my radar, called epinutrients. Yes. So essentially foods that you can consume that um, essentially alter the epigenome uh, such that certain genes are expressed or turned on and certain genes are not expressed or turned off. And, you know, we know that this is, this is highly applicable to diseases like cancer. So for example, there is a, a, a gene that's highly uh, concomitant with breast cancer called BRCA. And I, and I, I wanted to talk to you specifically about BRCA uh, because there is a BRCA mutation that creates a higher, um, uh, risk profile for cancer. And I want to ask you about that in a moment. Um, but can you potentially pull on that thread a little bit about how specific nutrients can change gene expression in a way that can be protective? Yeah. So we've got the epigenome, right? Which, you know, s sits on top of our genetics and influences the expression of our genes. And and, and we know that uh, we can turn on or turn off some of the genetic expression based on all sorts of things. So this stuff's fascinating. So much of our lifestyle mm -hmm. impacts turning on or turning off our, these genes. So how stress can impact or certain nutrients can impact, right? Whether these genes get turned on or turned off. There's a gene called the tumor suppressor gene, and it suppresses tumor growth. So that's a good, you know, we think, oh, well, I probably want to turn that one on. Let me turn that one on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and they've shown, they've shown that certain of these polyphenols can impact and turn on that gene. So sulforaphane being one of them. And one of the reasons I just, we always talk about sulforaphane and we love sulforaphane coming from those broccoli sprouts that you're making, um, that, that that can actually turn on the tumor suppressor gene. And same thing with uh, EGCG from green tea and why, why we really will recommend that people, if they like green tea, try to get an organic, an organic green tea, you know, two to four cups a day to get that EGCG and because it can, it can turn on that tumor suppressor gene. And it also has all these other properties as well. You know, it's the EGCG, it's anti-angiogenic, which stops blood vessels from growing to the tumor. It's anti-inflammatory, but but it, one of the things it's doing is it's impacting uh, a genetic expression, and and then we also can see that the sulforaphane, going back to sulforaphane, can impact the the expression of this gene that produces glutathione, and glutathione is like your master antioxidant and detoxifier in the body, and. And, and, and so it is, you know, that's, that's so cool that we can influence this expression by the foods that we're choosing to eat.
just to hover back onto the BRCA mutation for a moment, um, because this obviously made headlines specifically around Angelina Jolie's um, decision to get uh, an elective prophylactic uh, double mastectomy because she tested um, positive for the BRCA mutation. So BRCA1 and BRCA2, I believe, are actually tumor suppressors, but you can test positive for the actual mutation. And if you have the mutation, then you are more predisposed to um, contracting breast cancer or developing breast cancer. Um, Can you pull that apart a little bit? I mean, obviously, this started a wave um, because she's such a public figure around um, elective surgery. And you know, without putting you too much on the spot there, because everyone's decision needs to be individual and uh, based upon, you know, their conversations with their loved ones and their doctors. Um, But how much does the BRCA mutation truly um, influence one's susceptibility or risk profile for cancer? And in that case, is mastectomy something that you would recommend or would you veer more towards creating this unfriendly terrain? So that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so the BRCA gene is a, a high penetrance gene. So what that means is that it's a gene that has a, a big influence. So there are genes that we can talk about um, that are that that have an influence over our health and well-being, but they don't have as much of a, a penetrance, meaning they don't uh, they don't influence it as much. I'm just I'm going to try to explain this better. So so the BRCA gene, if somebody has a BRCA gene mutation, um, it it is a gene that's involved in DNA repair. So if there is damage to a cell, you know, that, that, that people with this BRCA gene mutation don't, don't fix the damaged DNA as easily. And so they're more likely to develop, to develop cancer. And, um, and I don't have the statistics on the top of my mind for BRCA1 and BRCA2 and, and breast cancer. So, you know, definitely no out there, don't quote me, but it's, it's, it's often over 50% of women who have one of these mutations will go on to get a breast cancer or ovarian or that sort of thing. So, so it's, that means it has a big penetrance. It really does impact a woman's risk, but you're right. We are, we are learning and we know that, that our lifestyle does impact that gene as well and how that gene expresses itself. Um, There's no doubt about it. We know that the, the, that people with this BRCA mutation, their risk of getting breast cancer has increased over the years meaning that we think there's something else, not just that one gene that's influencing somebody with the BRCA mutation's risk of getting cancer. So, so probably some toxin in the environment, but, you know, but, but that, so that, you know, let's say, again, I'm just, I, you know, coming up with some of these numbers, but let's say in the 1970s, it would be a much lower risk. You did have a higher risk of getting breast cancer, but it's not as high as it is today with somebody with a BRCA mutation. So the question is, you know, let's say you find out you have this BRCA mutation, what do you do? And, and, and that is, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to discuss there. And it's, it is, you know, definitely somebody's going to be going through higher screening and, and that sort of thing. But it, 
I think that what's important for those people to recognize is that there's other things they can and should and they want to do too, in addition to just maybe if they choose to have a surgery, um, what else can they do to create this healthy terrain? Because it does influence them as well. So there's other genes that we're learning a lot about too that influence a woman's risk of getting breast cancer. Um, these are more low penetrance genes and things like the COMT gene or the a glutathione uh, producing gene, uh, GSTM1, for example, or, um, or uh, uh, genes that influence how you metabolize estrogen. So what they're learning is that when, when, when people have some of these lower penetrance genes and multiple different ones, that that can actually influence their risk as well. And one of the things uh, we know about, like we've been kind of talking about for the last few minutes, is that we can influence the expression of these genes through choices that we make. You know, for example, um, the COMT gene is involved in methylation. It's a whole big mm-hmm. conversation. But, but what one of the things we know is that our green leafy vegetables are really high in methylfolate, which help some of these genes work better, especially when somebody has some variations or SNPs, right? So again, really focusing on, you know, there are things we can do to really support the functioning of some genes that might not work as well for some people. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald is actually at my house right now. So I'm going to ask her specifically about that. (laughs) Um, I'm not allowed to see her because uh, in full disclosure, I have COVID. Um, But hopefully I test negative tonight or tomorrow. Um, You know, I I just uh, listened to an interview with Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who's done a lot Mm -hmm. of work uh, around glyphosate. And um, she has a, uh, well, there's a lot around glyphosate that's proven. And then there's a lot around glyphosate that's still conjecture because we haven't had the opportunity to conduct the clinical trials. But, you know, one of the things, um, you know, that she was mentioning, well, obviously, we know that glyphosate undermines gut health and tears at those tight junctures in our epithelium that can lead to intestinal permeability and then an overactive immune system and this constant state of chronic inflammation um, that is very friendly terrain for cancer, let's say, and and for other diseases. Now, you talked about glutathione as kind of the master antioxidant. Um, Well, she has a theory that glutathione or or that glyphosate is actually um, replacing the glycine amino acid inside of glutathione and causing all sorts of havoc and essentially um, down-regulating the efficacy and production of glutathione at the mitochondrial level. So then you see this kind of rise in reactive oxygen species and, and free radicals, and then and there's no antioxidants there to, to neuter it. And then that gets out of the cell and causes all sorts of havoc. So when you talk about all of the different environmental toxins to be aware of, yes, the list is long, um, but one of those is where you can to, uh, to shop certified organic or, or eat organic to yeah. avoid um, caustic um, uh, herbicides like glyphosate. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, so I'm always, I think that's important, you know, whenever we speak about getting more phytonutrients, you know, or, or green tea, for example, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of 
pesticides and herbicides that might be in some of those products if you're not making the right choices. And, um, you know, like there's also tea bags now that, you know, those plastic, they have these microplastics in it. You're like, oh my goodness, you know, this is not where we need to go. We want it, you know, so I'm always telling people get, you know, good organic teas, you know, you don't need it. Some, some tea bags are okay, but you know, I love just using a, a, a metal strainer and, you know, doing it the, that way. Um, so I think that, I think that little things make a big difference on our toxic load. You know, we, we are, we are, our bodies are made to detoxify. We are set up for, for detoxification. We poop, we pee, we sweat, you know, we have a lymphatic system, we breathe, but, but we want to really support all of that with as, as much as we can and, and lower the toxic load as much as we can, because, because, you know, I think that's really one of the things that got me into trouble. I had, um, you know, a, a, probably a, a bunch of toxin exposure and, you know, don't have the best genes for, for my body's, you know, detox pathways. And, and, and when I was younger, I used to get sick all the time, you know, colds and flus and viruses. And, and, and really when I realized, when I learned about my, my genetic SNPs, my predispositions, and that, that I really needed to work on lowering my toxic load, I actually, I, I didn't just get more healthy in terms of not getting cancer again, not yet, you know, knocking on wood, but also, you know, um, but colds and flus and that sort of thing too. Um, and, and so I just need more support in my production of glutathione through things like, you know, the, you know, sulforaphane and through, I take glutathione and that, and that sort of thing, but also working to lower the toxic load. So I always say to patients, you know, stay away from plastic pay attention. It sneaks in there. You know, you know, some people are like, well, this is a BPA free water bottle. I'm like, no, 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 no. Stay away from those plastics, you know, and pay attention, you know, look at labels for parabens and phthalates and don't put stuff on your lawn. You know, I mean, you know, we, we don't, <laughs> you know, the herbicides on the lawn, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like um, those are, it, it just really makes a big difference over time to work to lower that toxic load. Yeah. When you were, kind of analyzing your own personal predispositions genetically. Uh, you, you mentioned SNPs a couple of times. So I, I believe that's single nucleotide polymorphisms. But um, did you take a DNA test? And if so, are there ones that you can recommend for people if, if they're interested in understanding their genetic predispositions? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've being in this field, um, I've had a lot of different panels done over the years and there's been a lot of, you know, we're always learning something new, um, at the present time. So I've had, uh, you know, Genova did some genetics testing on me. Um, Nordic labs did genetic testing on me three by four did genetic testing on me. Um, I, I like, I like the panels. I mean, you can't go through 23andMe and then get it analyzed. But one of the nice things about those panels is that there's just a lot of information in there and they kind of make it a little bit more practical and user-friendly, I guess, is the way to, to, way to put it. And, um, and, there, and there's so much we can learn about, about somebody. But, but there's also a lot that we're still learning about all of these things. So it's, you know, it's that thing, like the more, you know, the less, you know, 
So um, (laughs) one of these things that I just love about functional medicine and when I work with a patient is really work, you know, showing them the functional medicine matrix, showing them how all their different systems in their body are interrelated, but also really focusing on the personalized lifestyle factors at the bottom. And where for that person do they need to focus, right? So, so for one person with breast cancer, it may be, you know, we've got to clean up their diet, right? Or get them moving or exercising, or maybe their sleep is a mess. For me, it was really that stress, stress section mm-hmm. of that personalized lifestyle factors that I really needed to, to, to focus on and, and learn about how to navigate the world in a healthier way than, than I was sort of set up to do, whether because of my genetics or, you know, just early life exposures. And, um, and, and I had to, you know, I really had to work on that a lot because that had a huge impact on my immune system, my overall health and well-being, and just, you know, just, you know, the quality of my life as well. Yeah, well, I, I want to probe some of the other modalities that are part of your daily routine, uh, particularly as it pertains to stress. But uh, I think that, you know, this could be a good time to outline some of the primary tenets of functional medicine. So yes. first, if you look at kind of conventional medicine, which generally takes a cluster of symptoms and then makes a diagnosis based around these symptoms, and then often prescribes a, uh, a non-individualized pharmaceutical to address these clusters of symptoms. Um, that is a typical approach for conventional medicine. How would um, functional medicine and functional du- nutrition differ? What are the core tenets, I suppose, of functional medicine? Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, you're absolutely right. So in my, in my medical school and residency training, one of the things we focused on was, okay, let's come up with that diagnosis quickly. Let's name it and then come up with that substance, that pharmacological agent or whatever to, to treat it, to tame it. Right. So, so that was really the, the, the focus. And, and I think, I think that a lot of that really stemmed from the fact that you know, from acute care medicine, because in acute care medicine, it's really important. Somebody comes into the ER, you want to really figure out what's going on right away and help them be more comfortable or save their life right away. But with chronic disease and healthcare and chronic disease management, that's really not the best way to attack it. And so functional medicine has really stepped in to say, listen, we've got to do this differently. We're really missing the boat often when we're just focusing on naming it and coming up with a prescription medication to, to, because we've got to, like you said, what are the tenants? The first one is it's individualized, right? It's, it's treating each person as an individual because you, if you had 10 people who came in with depression, you may have 10 different reasons for why they have depression. And if you can individualize your treatment plan, you're more likely to be successful. And so I think that's one of the first things we really focus on is this, it's, it's personalized, it's individualized, right? Um, it's patient-centered as opposed to disease-centered. Disease-centered would be we're focusing on what's going, what's that disease, depression, and, you know, but, but more what, with this person, how does, what are they experiencing? What are all their systems in their body? How are they out of balance? Um, 
it's it's really science based. It's it, it, we focus on using the latest science and incorporating the latest science into our practice. Uh, and 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 there's a huge lifestyle component to functional medicine. Really looking at you know the 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 you know working toward optimal wellness and focusing on how lifestyle can impact our health and well being. And I think that's really critical. I mean we're you know, we're spending, what is it, over 85% of our healthcare dollars in this country are spent on chronic disease management, and we're not doing a good job, right? No, we're not. No. Um, I mean, so so we've got to kind and, of And the come scale up with- is crazy. I mean, it's yeah. we're talking trillions upon trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if we keep going uh, on this trajectory, we're literally going to bankrupt ourselves just mm-hmm. on treating chronic disease. It's... It, yeah. Um, and people don't yeah, feel satisfied, right? Patients come to me all the time because they, they're not getting what they, they need, you know? And, and I don't think physicians often in that situation are satisfied either. I don't think it's just a, you know, I think it's both ways, um, often. So we, we know that like that team approach, you know, having, you know, really forming a team that can help patients really become more healthy and not just, you know, again, naming and blaming, but really creating, you know, more optimal health in their, in their, it has a huge impact. Yeah. So there's a emphasis on prevention. There is an emphasis on examining and excavating root causes. Um, There's an emphasis on systems thinking, and maybe Mm -hmm. we can probe that a little bit more. Um, And then there is this emphasis on, um, I guess, precision individualized care. Um, Now, let's potentially probe systems thinking a little bit for a moment, because what is so often the case, uh, and, and this is not just confined to the world of medical science, this could be the way government acts and the way just people act day to day, is that is very reductionist. It's like we try to isolate and identify a, a misstep or a bug in the system and then come up with a simple fix mm. to address that particular bug in the system mm-hmm. and then go full force at that without actually thinking too much about the holobiont in which that system exist or, or or the other wider implications or ramifications of that particular um, prescription. So I think of like statins, for example, yeah. um, which can be prescribed and are prescribed uh, for cardiovascular disease, you know, but that aren't always looking at the knock-on impacts uh, on the endocrine system or the production of testosterone mm-hmm. from, from cholesterol once you shut down the endogenous creation of cholesterol. So, you know, all of these things. So I wonder, you know, can you pull on that a little bit? How does functional medicine really look at, more broadly at systems? Yeah. So, you know, for, let's take somebody with asthma, for example, you know, somebody comes mm. in with, with, with it, having some asthma, you know, one of the things that I like to do is, well, what we're doing in functional medicine is we're getting that, as I said, that really detailed history and timeline for the patient. 
and then putting their information on a matrix and looking at how all the different systems in their body are interrelated. So if you just take somebody with asthma and you go, okay, I'm just going to give you albuterol so you know you're you're you can breathe better. I mean, that may be necessary for in the short term for this person, but if you just do that, then you may miss some of the other things that the imbalances in their body may be triggering. Mm. For example, yeah. I mean, I'm just going to come up with one example, but let's say somebody is, uh, I'm going to take my son. So, you know, he started to have some reactive airway when he was le less than two. And um, we ended up realizing it was dairy related. And so when we took him off of dairy, his reactive airway or asthma got better and he never really needed medication unless he gets really sick. So, um, but if, but let's say I didn't make that step. I didn't look for what was that underlying root cause? How were his systems in his body out of balance? Then, you know, then the dairy may be causing other inflammation for him as well. So, um, you know, maybe causing inflammation in the digestive system and digestive issues and diarrhea and or bloating, or it may be causing congestion or it may be causing eczema. You know, so if you if you just deal with the asthma, with the medication for the asthma, and you don't get rid of and look at how all the different systems in the body are interrelated, then your your treatment is then then they come back with the eczema and then you're giving them a medication for that and then they come back with diarrhea and you're giving them a medication for that right so that's really where functional medicine i think is it can be so beneficial because you can look to say for this individual person what's going on here and if i pull away you know the the trigger for them you then all these other systems in their body fall into place yeah, that's so important. Um, you know, I was reading about uh, certain immunotherapies that are mm -hmm. being developed now for for cancer treatment. Yeah. So, you know, we've had the the typical treatments, uh, you know, surgery and chemo radiation that in some cases have proved to be to be effective. Um, but now there's a whole new field of study around immunotherapy, which are different ways to essentially help bolster or boost the immune system itself to fight off certain cancers. Mm -hmm. And um, now this doesn't apply to, to all cancers, that, but I think, you know, for example, there's CAR T immunotherapy, which is more configured, I believe, towards blood cancers, et cetera. But I was reading about like just checkpoint inhibitors, for example. So, you know, there's um, these T cells that generally are going to attack and kill cancer cells. But these cancer cells are so devious mm -hmm. that um, they're able to connect to this particular kind of receptor uh, on the T cell called a, called a checkpoint. And those checkpoints are to are there to make sure that the immune system doesn't overreact. But yeah. uh, these these sneaky, devious Machiavellian cancer cells trick um, the uh, the T cells really by um, by connecting um, to these receptors and, and neutering their um, their efficacy. So there's a there's a class of drugs now. Um, called checkpoint inhibitors, where that can be administered to essentially break that connection between 
the cancer cell and the checkpoint receptor. But what's amazing, and I, I was reading uh, specifically the work of Dr. William Lee, who mm-hmm. talks a lot about Buddhist medicine, um, that there is a particular uh, bacteria uh, known as acromantia, that if you have a population of acromantia and you're feeding your gut in a healthy way with all the ways that we described with like good prebiotic fibers and polyphenols, that that acromantia can actually upgrade the efficacy of these checkpoint inhibitors. So now they're being, um, uh, along with the administration of these pharmaceutical drugs that are geared towards bolstering the immune system, you also have these holistic treatments around rebuilding the gut uh, to work in synergistic tandem with the immune system. And this is like the coolest I almost, sometimes I swear on my podcast, this is the coolest freaking thing Uh (laughs) because this is where I think like the future of medicine could be headed where it's like we are using the innovation and technology that we have developed uh, over the past 150 years or so in combination with systems thinking and functional medicine thinking and holistic kinds of approaches and and approaches towards healthy diet and rebuilding the gut, et cetera. So this is, a, you know, for me, one of the most exciting um, frontiers in medicine. Yeah. And that brings us back to like the pomegranate that we started with that we were talking about a little while ago and how that can help feed the acromancia. And, you know, people can get the pomegranate seeds or, you know, a pomegranate powder and put it into a smoothie or whatever. And it's a great, great way to get the the, the substance, the anthocyanins that help feed the acromancia. So, mm, yeah. So I'm curious a little bit about your personal practices. So I, I know that you have created, um, some media in the form of videos that exist on Vimeo on your website um, and a DVD um, around uh, breast cancer treatment and and prevention. Um, And as part of that, you know, you really do go into some great depth around um, kind of mindfulness and movement modalities. So I wonder if you could talk about the connection that you see between these kind of modalities and health and disease prevention, and also um, embarrass yourself a little bit by by telling us which ones you practice on a regular basis. Okay, absolutely. So, um, so I came out with the breast wellness DVD in 2015, and I did it with a dear friend of mine, Heidi Spear, who is a meditation uh, yoga instructor. Who, um, and, and it was just so much fun. But I knew that when I came out with the DVD, where I wanted to talk about the functional medicine approach to breast health and wellness, um, I know we needed to speak to and give practical tools for how to integrate mindfulness and meditation and yoga and into your daily life. Because, because for me, it changed my life a hundred percent. Right. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I wanted to really incorporate it into the, into the DVD or which is also now, as you mentioned on Vimeo, you can, you can um, instantly watch it because I don't even know who has a DVD player anymore. 
Um, but some people yeah. still do. <laughs> um, You'd be surprised how many people still do, still actually. Do. But yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, within the recording, we we have the second half of it is Heidi leading people in three meditation, you know, gentle, um, gentle yoga meditation practices, you know, um, that, that people can do again and again, you know, they can practice again and again. Um, and, and Heidi Spear has a lot of other wonderful thing. You know, she's on insight timer. You can find her on there. She's got a lot of other meditations you can do. And there's, there's many, you know, wonderful meditation, uh, guided meditations out there. So, so for me, I, I found, or I find guided meditation really lovely. You know, um, I really, I, so I definitely meditate on my own, but I love guided meditation. You know, it, it, it just is something that works even better for me, I guess. And, um, uh, and so there's some that I've, you know, kind of just grown to love and practice and, um, and, and I know the benefit about doing it in the morning. I typically do it in the evening, <laughs> um, for like 10, 15 minutes, but I, but I, you know, I think it'd be great if I could do it twice a day too, actually, it'd be probably very good for me. Oh, I mean, I think it's great and so useful in the evening, yeah. um, because that's at the, the place where you want the natural serum secretion of, of melatonin anyways right and you want right. to take your cortisol levels down yeah. where in the morning you know you actually might want some degree of cortisol to thrust you into your yes. day and make you alert and able to have a conversation on a podcast um right. but you know if you can bookend your day with meditation um god bless you then you're then you're really really doing it um what but I maybe found... oh, yeah sorry. I was just going to no, say no, what no. I find so fascinating with the practice. Um, well, just you know, even going back twenty three years ago, when I said, "Okay, I've got to, I've got to do something," right? And I, um, I, I was, I always tell the story. I was watching Oprah because Oprah was on, and you know, I was taking a break from residency, and you know, she had a section on the gratitude journal, and you know, mm. for me, that really ch- helped my me change my my mindset and the way that I sort of reacted minute to minute. Um, you know, she, she said, well, you know, let's start do start doing a, a, a gratitude journal and write down three things you do every day that, um, you're grateful for. And, you know, I, I was, I was, I was in the midst of cancer treatment. I was like feeling really sorry for myself. I, <laughs> I, um, I was kind of pissed off. I have to actually have to admit. And, <laughs> Um, and, and so it wasn't always easy at first, um, but what, what it, what, over time, what I could notice is just noticing where my mind would go. Like that would, that's what I find fascinating is we're like, oh, look at my mind going negative, you know, or, oh, look at my mind just, you know, getting so stressed or worried or over-focusing on something. And, and, and that's just, I think one of the things about, mindfulness whether it's and then gratitude journaling or meditation is it just you know and I always say to patients all the time because they always are like I'm not good at that you're not supposed to be good at it it's not good or bad it's the practice that helps you just sort of pay attention to how you're letting your mind just go 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 right yeah well we all suffer from that chatterbox or what's known as monkey mind 
mm-hmm. where, you know, thoughts are branches and, you know, we're swinging riotlessly from branch to branch. Um, and yeah, th- this idea of non-judgmental sacred presence, the state of being that is cultivated through meditation really allows us to witness that ego, that dialogue that's mm-hmm. happening on the ego level, which is really just this construction or projection of the symbol that we, we give ourselves, really. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, we get to almost rise above ourselves and, and, and look at ourselves um, as, as a witness, like you said, and just notice. And, uh, you know, that, that was my first step, too, towards also being a, a better parent, um, yes. where I could actually witness myself being angry at a particular situation or frustrated, you know, at a particular situation and then look at myself and be like, what are you doing wasting your time being so frustrated and angry, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the more that we engage in that practice, the more it transcends the actual practice itself and begins to punctuate our daily life. And that's really why, why we do it. Um, it is not necessarily just to sit on a cushion with incense wafting past, although that's a lovely experience to have moment to moment. Um, but we want it to punctuate our quotidian life such that we are better parents and better friends and better siblings and better coworkers and colleagues, et cetera. And that's where I found it to be helpful. And also better for ourselves, right? Like, you know, like for yeah. me, it was like, oh, there's there's more joy in, in life and there's more ease and there's more. It's just it's just lovelier, you know, place. To yeah. Be. Well, there, there's this kind of well, obviously, the, the benefits are, are multifarious. There's obviously this, this kind of spiritual benefit. But then there are all this kind of litany of very specific physiological benefits And, you know, this is the one thing, one of the things that we can do anyways, to move ourselves from a sympathetic state into a parasympathetic state, right? Mm -hmm. And a parasympathetic state has very, very different hormones and neurotransmitters associated with it versus Mm -hmm. a fight or flight amygdala hijacked sympathetic overload state. So you know, maybe you could spend a couple of minutes talking about that, because I think it's really important for people to understand the mechanisms of play, because when they understand the mechanism, then the protocol becomes way more obvious to, to, to actually yeah. adopt. So with your meditation practice, for example, what hormones and neurotransmitters are you encouraging through that practice and what other ones are you potentially tamping down? Right. So, I mean, you're one of the things that we know with meditation, right. And I'm just going to pull it back to cancer for a second is we're, you know, we're also when we know that when we're activating that parasympathetic nervous system, you know, we are, um, we are actually able to increase natural killer cell production. And those natural killer cells can go around. They're part of our innate immune system and they can gobble up abnormal cells and cancer cells in the body. 
And we know that, you know, what you're asking about hormones and neurotransmitters, we know that when we're under, when we're under stress, right, when we're, when that sympathetic nervous system is going off and, and listen, we've, we've got to have a good sympathetic nervous system to run away from the tiger, right? The problem is when there is a chronic high level of that sympathetic nervous system going on, when we're chronically in fight or flight, that's really the, the issue. And we know that, for example, cortisol levels are really, really high. And, and, and that high level of cortisol can also drive high levels of insulin. We spoke about, right. we spoke about how insulin right, is a growth hormone and creates inflammation in the body. And, and those situations result in the immune system just not working as well when we're chronically in this state of flight or fight. Fight or flight that we're you know that mm-hmm. that high level of cortisol, high level of insulin is just is just driving, and um, and 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 our immune system just doesn't work as well. You know they've even shown that with caretakers and how they respond to vaccines. So you know they they took a group of caretakers, people who are chronically you know more likely to be in a state of chronic stress. And that they're um, uh, when they give them a vaccine, they don't create as much antibodies against the you know the substance they're getting vaccinated against as somebody who is not in that straight in that state of chronic stress and chronic fight or flight. So you know just the importance of recognizing how to activate the immune system to have all the aspects of our immune system work as well as they can. We want to really be getting, you know, working to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, the calming nervous system in the body. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Obviously I've, I've also seen some data um, showing higher efficacy for vaccines after a good night's sleep or a couple of good nights sleep. It's just that simple. Um, so I want to be mindful of your time, but I had one last question or two for you, which relates to, um, again, to the gut, um, but specifically around the over administration or over prescription of antibiotics. Um, so we all know that antibiotics can be very useful for, for some infections, but how, um, does the overprescription of antibiotics and the downstream effects on the gut um, uh, connect with cancer and potentially creating a more friendly terrain for proliferation? Yeah, so, you know, there, uh, for myself, um, I was on, I had chronic urinary tract infections as a kid. So from the age of like five to 16, I was on round and round and round of antibiotics, unfortunately. Mm. And, um, and, and, and that really does influence the balance of the good and bad bacteria in our gut and all of our microbes, not just bacteria. And, and, and so it's, it's been an interest of mine just to look at that literature. And we do see that there is, you know, when, when people have had more antibiotic use over their lifetime, they do have higher rates of certain cancers. They've seen it, they've shown it in breast cancer. They've definitely shown it in colon cancer, colorectal cancer. And um, um, because the antibiotics, uh, you know, are killing off the 
bacterial infection that you're treating, but they're also getting rid of some of the good bacteria in our body. And we have all these good microbes that you know, line our skin, our nasal passageway, our, our bladder, our, our um, digestive system. And these, these microbes are part of the first line of defense, right? They, they prevent unwanted bugs and bacteria from getting into the body. But they also, you know, the good bugs, right, create a more uh, a, a, a healthier milieu in the body. And when there's an imbalance in those bugs, we call it dysbiosis, when there's an imbalance, then that is a more pro-inflammatory situation, which has definitely been tied to cancer. There's so many ways that shifts in our microbiota potentially can impact a woman's risk of breast cancer. From We know that shifts in the microbiota can impact how you produce sulforaphane from your broccoli, like we were talking about earlier. We also mm. know that it can influence level of inflammation in the body. Um, we also know that shifts in our microbiota impact production of certain of certain nutrients. We know, for example, our good bugs produce vitamin K2, which has a lot of benefit for the immune system. Um, and, and we know that the bacteria in our digestive system influence how we detoxify and how we get rid of estrogen, for example. So when your estrogen, when right. your, you know, after estrogen has done its job, whether, you know, you know, just a normal cycle of the month or pregnancy, after estrogen does what it does, you need to get rid of it and you get rid of it through the stool. And, and if there's an imbalance in the bugs in the gut that can influence the reabsorption of estrogen into the body, and you don't you don't get rid of it as as well, and so um, and then that's true with toxins too, right? So so there's so many ways that 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 uh, the the microbes can probably influence a person's risk. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up estrogen, and, and maybe we could do a, a follow up conversation at some point specifically about the relationship between estrogen. And, and breast cancer and ovarian cancer, I did see an interesting data point that sometime in the early 2000s, reported cases of breast cancer actually plummeted uh, yeah. in relation to the, uh, well, not cessation, but the deceleration of hormone treatment, postmenopausal hormone treatment. Mm -hmm. um, why is that exactly? Does too much estrogen in the body um, up the chances for the development of certain cancers? So that's a great question. Um, one of the things we do know is that high levels of estrogen can cause cancer to grow. So, you right. know, there's, there's certain types of breast cancers have a proliferation of estrogen receptors on them. They have more estrogen receptors than a typical breast cell, for example. So they uh -huh. call them ER positive breast cancers. They have lots of estrogen receptors. So estrogen will cause it to grow. But, but what th that was the Women's Health Initiative. And that was most of the hormones that we were giving women before that time. A lot of them were maybe not the healthiest of hormones. They were not considered bioidentical. They were oral you know, they might be more pro-inflammatory. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions in that data and a lot that we could, we could work to tease out. Um, 
but we do know that that estrogen does you know can influence the growth of a of a cancer cell and then, then there's this question of well did it cause the cancer in the first place or is it just causing helping the growth you know i think that's a very very valid good question that would be a lot to you know to sort of tease through um with that being said you know i think that one of the things i always focus on is is helping the body metabolize and get rid of estrogen, right? So once it's done its job, you want to metabolize it well and get rid of it well. And again, I'm going to go back to sulforaphane, one of the things that it's really good at, at doing. Um, but so is a high fiber diet, right? Because that that that's one of the ways that we, you know, help toxins as well as hormones that the body's used leave the body. And um, and and so I think that. And, and then avoiding things like xenoestrogens, these things from the environment that can also impact the estrogen receptor. So I think I don't think we have all of the information regarding hormones and cancer and you know cause versus just allowing it to grow faster um, in high estrogen states. But it is something we pay attention to, and we do know that when when women gain weight right? Their body makes more estrogen. And, and so higher right. levels of estrogen are related in that situation as well. Mm. Okay. Last question for you. Okay. And I'll, I'll let you get into your day. So you mentioned that you were on multiple rounds of, of broad spectrum antibiotics um, that, that r- reduced the, the quality of bacteria uh, in your gut. Um, you know, there's other obviously too much sugar or alcohol, uh, the overconsumption of NSAIDs or PPIs. Um, you can point your finger to to glyphosate and other pesticides. Essentially, there's a lot of different things that can essentially put you into dysbiosis and potentially cause endotoxemia or leaky gut that leads to chronic inflammation that that we've talked about. Do you have a particular protocol? for rebuilding the gut flora in your gut if you absolutely need to take an antibiotic? So, you know, I think that the the biggest thing we want to do is create resilience for people. So, so you know, just working with people all the time so they're eating a high-fiber diet, they're eating fermented foods. You know, for some people, maybe they're taking probiotics. I use them a lot from from an immune perspective and a gut health perspective. Um, and that helps to create this resilience so that if you do have to take an antibiotic, you know, you're more likely to get under better balance again. The question of like, should we take more probiotics after an antibiotic for a period of time? I think we don't have that specific answer right away, but I will often give like a, a, a probiotic that has some espalarity in it as well for a period of time after, after antibiotics, if somebody has to do it. But I think the key, the key is building that resilience and making those good choices as often as we can. So we're less likely to have an issue if we need to take an antibiotic. And the, I think the other biggest area of uh, antibiotic use, right, is in our, in, 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 uh, feedlots, right. So like in beef Mm. and, you know, Uh, another reason why to choose grass fed, grass finished organic beef, because you're then going to not get that, that antibiotic exposure that way as well. 
Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother topic that we can save for another day. But essentially what's happening on CAFOs, these concentrated animal feeding operations, is we're pushing this livestock into leaky gut and dysbiosis mm-hmm. uh, as a means to fatten them up quickly. The yeah. antibiotics are somewhat about protecting for disease, but it's actually a, the knock-on impact is about tearing their guts apart such that they become insulin resistant and get fat and, you know, the rest of the story. So, and how that impacts, how that impacts us, as you can imagine. Yeah, Yeah. I know. I know it. Um, well, uh, Elizabeth Boham, um, uh, doctor, it's been such a, a, an honor and a pleasure to, to connect with you. And I, I really hope this uh, can be part of a continued conversation because I, I know how much I personally uh, will learn and have learned from you, but, uh, but also just the audience. And I will just say, you're just such an inspiration in terms of how you've dedicated your life, how you communicate um, both on a very high level, but also on a very accessible level for people such that they can really adopt the protocols in a way that's very meaningful to their lives. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, I, I did have a form of cancer when I was 13 years old. And, um, and it was really an inflection point in, in my life. I think I kind of went into Sloan Kettering as a boy and I came out a little bit of a, as a man. Of course, I was 13, so that, that's a normal inflection point. But oftentimes, I think life's biggest challenges turn out to be our greatest teachers. Mm-hmm. And if we can find that strength uh, to turn what could be post traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth, um, that, is a, that is a wonderful and fulfilling life. And you have done that in spades. So a lot of gratitude to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today and with all your listeners. So thank you. Great. And where can we find you uh, day to day to keep abreast of all of your, uh, of all of your work? So, um, I, I practice at the ultra wellness center. So the ultrawellnesscenter.com is our practice website. My personal website is drboham.com and on Facebook and Instagram, I'm Elizabeth Boham MD. So. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to share all of your work in the show notes. And again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Boham. If you're interested in Dr. Boham's work and her video program on breast wellness, please visit her at drboham.com. That's B-O-H-A-M. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review if it's a good one. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much energy we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for free no strings attached for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. 
Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and most importantly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>